Well, there's a photo coming up, uh, and it's not Andrew in his younger days. Uh, can we get the machine going? Uh, does anyone recognise this man? Anyone? Anyone? You know? Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, you probably wouldn't know him. There's no reason you would. He's the 28th Vice President of the USA. They are back in the 20s. Uh, Thomas Marshall, uh, not famous really for anything, except he was the recipient of the first ever letter bomb, an explosive in an envelope. Uh, an explosive letter. He survived because, as it turns out, uh, he got lots of crank mail and hate mail, uh, and so he just refused to read anything that didn't have a return to sender address on the back. And so it was an anonymous letter. He chucked it in the bin where it promptly exploded, and he survived. Uh, well, in Revelation 2 and 3, we've got a very different kind of explosive letter. Uh, it's not necessarily a school report you'd want to receive, and it's not like a school report which is given to the person or to their parents. Uh, um, it's not an anonymous letter, uh, like the one that Thomas Marshall received, uh, and it's not a letter that's designed to kill and maim like the one sent to him, but it was an explosive wake-up call to the church. Who's the sender? Well, it's a letter from Jesus Christ, who we met last week was introduced in very startling terms in chapter 1 as the supreme Lord and Master of all, uh, the heir of the living and the dead, the one who reigns over all kings and powers, the one whose blood was shed for us, the one who is alive again, and the one who is worthy of all glory and honour forever and ever. And then we saw that frightening sight, well, where it was recorded by John, what he saw who wrote it down, the sight of Jesus that made him drop to the floor as though dead when he saw him. He was so terrified and stunned uh, and uh, he's awesome. He is the king. Who's the letter to? Well, it's addressed to the seven churches that uh, we uh, saw on the map last week in Asia Minor that we call today, up near Turkey. Uh, the, it was the Roman province of Asia, uh, seven capital cities. Some of them you might be familiar with the names from the Bible, like Ephesus and so on. Uh, others you probably, oh, is that even a town? And uh, one of them you might go, isn't that in America, Philadelphia? Uh, no, that uh, was the, named after this one here. Uh, so they're all up around Turkey. But as we'll see, it's not to them alone because it's not private mail. It's not the report sent back to the parents because it's not just seven churches that are in need of special attention who, you know, pull up your socks. But the number seven, as we saw last week, means the whole. It means entire, the whole, the complete lot. And so really this is a letter to the whole church, the whole church across the world, the whole church across the ages, anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. It's written to us to listen and to take to heart what Jesus is saying to all of his church. And as we read through it, it's actually a very well-organised letter. It's got a clear structure. It addresses each of the, the seven city churches, uh, their main cities. It's not all the main cities in the area. Colossi, for instance, was in the region, but they haven't got one addressed to them. But it addresses each of them in turn. And each section follows a certain pattern. Now, if you've got the big handout, uh, you'll see it there. I typed that up. I thought uh, I could show you on one page. It all follows the pattern. It runs down the uh, left-hand column. And you'll see there, every one of them starts, uh, to the angel of the church of, name of this town, right? These are the words of, and it's, uh, the words of Jesus in all of them, but it's the words of a description of Jesus that was taken from that, that vision that we saw last week, right from chapter one. These are the words of him who walks among the lampstands. This is the vision of the, one, uh, the words of him who holds the seven stars, that kind of thing. Then there's a commendation, you know, something good that Jesus sees in the particular church. You know, you're strong and you're going well because of this and this and this. Uh, but then there's a word of condemnation but I've got this against you. It's not just you're you know, a bit lackluster and you need to pull your socks out. Actually, Jesus is against the church for this reason. And your weaknesses are that, that and that. Then there's a word of warning about what will happen if they don't deal with the problems and 
sometimes a word of encouragement if you stay faithful. And then each part finishes with, let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And often there's a wonderful promise for those who do hear and take it to heart and who, as he says, overcome. They overcome the problems. They overcome the opposition, whatever it might happen to be. And as we go through it, we're going to see that this is really what this is, is Jesus' own interpretation of the current state of the church in the world. This is the spiritual realities. We saw last week that Revelation is the pulling back of the curtain. It's an exposing of the spiritual realities. This is the spiritual reality of Jesus' church. Uh, the real issues that these particular churches faced back then, though they might have tried to cover them up, and there's still the very same issues that the church faces now and will always face until he's coming again. These are the issues that the church always has to deal with. And so even when we don't know all the specific details about the historical background as he addresses the real churches, it's still pretty straightforward about the kinds of things that he's talking about and what he is warning them or encouraging them with and warning and encouraging us with. So, for example, there's a group that turns up a couple of times called the Nicolaitans. Anyone know who they were? Turns out no one knows who they were, right? The only time they're mentioned in any writing is here, right? They're not recorded in any other ancient literature. People have speculated about them on the internet, but that's they're just sharing their ignorance. Um, so no one knows who they were. Uh, this is the only place they're ever mentioned in any literature. But what they stand for is clear, and the fact that Jesus hates them, that's also clear. Likewise, there's a woman mentioned named Jezebel. Who's she? Where was she? I don't know. Uh, but what was she saying and what she was doing and leading the church into? Well, that'll become totally obvious as we read through it. Now, we're doing things a little bit unusually, a bit different to normal, and we're going to have uh, seven different readers uh, for the seven different churches, because each church has its own kind of characteristic, right? They're all different to each other, and I thought it'd be good to hear them all in a different voice, um, to, yeah, just to kind of you know, reinforce the differences. Uh, and so the first church is Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Let me throw it. What, what would you say characterises that church? As you hear Jesus' word to them, what, what would you say they're like? How would you sum them up? Jaded. Jaded? Okay, maybe, yeah. Uh, sorry? Religious? Okay. They, uh, yeah, I think I, I'd describe them as zeal without love. All right, zeal without love. Jesus sees that their strength is their zeal, particularly their zeal for the truth. Right, they, A zeal that's seen in their hard work, in their patient endurance, that's seen in finding falsehood and spotting errors and falsehood. And they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. And I, I picture them to be kind of this theologically sharp, um, uh, well-versed church. They're the kind of church where every member... You say a verse from the Old Testament, they can all just flip there in a single flip, you know, kind of, you know, they know their stuff, right? In fact, it turns out this was one of the major centres of Christianity uh, in 
uh, post-New Testament times. There were, it was like the Bible college to go to was Ephesus. There was Ephesus, Antioch, a couple other places, but that was the one to go. This is, these are the smart dudes, right? They know their Bible. They know their theology. Uh, and they can see right through false teaching. Something, some preacher comes there like, oh no, he's a, he's a Marcionite. <laughs> yeah, him. You know? uh, and they can see with piercing clarity. And they're happy to take down heresy any time they see it. And Jesus actually commends them for it. You see, he said, I, I really like that. This is a wonderful thing about you. Uh, he loves that about them. He commends them. Don't, and so don't underestimate an importance of zeal for the truth. Jesus thinks it's fantastic. Hating lies and error is, is actually a right thing to do. Being able to spot things that will distort and destroy is, is praiseworthy from the Lord Jesus Christ. And working through all the facets and the implications of the gospel is a wonderful thing that he is commending. You've got to know your stuff. But their weak point might only be one thing, but it's a fatal flaw. Verse 4, I have this against you, you have forsaken your first love, or that is your original love, the love you had at first. You used to be loving in all this. Now you're just jerks, right? Um, They've left behind that love that they had, that love for Jesus, right? And the the reason they were doing it, they've left behind the love for his disciples and his church. And they're driven now maybe by just wanting to be seen to be right all the time. You know the kind of person? Uh, they're, They're arrogant. And Jesus says without that love, he's going to come and remove them from his church. Remember, he was the one who walked among the seven lampstands. And in fact, that's how he introduces himself to the Ephesians, to the one who walks amongst the seven lampstands. And his threat is the lampstand, which is the church. I'm going to take it out. It's going to be removed. I won't be with them anymore. They will not be my people. It's a stern warning. And so the challenge to them is to repent with the promise that those who do repent will, in fact, eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, that they've got it made, that they've, they've got their love back and they, they're going to be there. They are Jesus' people forever. And it's worth pondering, we're going to just take a moment to reflect after each of these, is that us? Are we like that? Have we in our battle against error and you know, seeking to be right, lost our first love, that, that gospel love of Jesus and his disciples, which are fundamental to our Christian walk. I mean, we make it our own. It's in our mission statement that we want to be, um, uh, we want to bring glory to God by being biblically sharp, right? Prayerfully dependent, sacrificially loving, thoroughly equipped. We want to be biblically sharp and thoroughly equipped. We want to know our stuff. We want our people to know our stuff. Um, uh, so that we can avoid lies. And, and actually, I think we're pretty good at sniffing out heresy. But is it because we really um, just are prideful? Is it because we, you know, we don't really love those who are deceived, that we're not in it because we want to help people? Uh, is it because we're smug and self-satisfied? Because that's the question that's raised for us by what Jesus says to Ephesus. Well, let's turn to Smyrna. And I reckon they're a church who, well, no, I'll tell you afterwards what I think. There you go. Maybe what characterizes Smyrna as we hear it read? To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be heard by all, by the second death at all. How would you sum them up? Poor. Poor. Sorry? Beset. Beset. Yeah, that's a good word. Beset. 
uh, beset by opposition. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not beset by their sins. In fact, there's really nothing wrong with them and what they're doing. There's no rebuke for them. Uh, they're faithful, but they're fearful. That's how I'd sum it. They're faithful, but they're fearful. Um, they're completely different to the church in Ephesus. Jesus got nothing bad to say there. It's pretty much all praise and encouragement to, to stop them being afraid and to keep going. They're a church who have stood firm and they are enduring as Christians despite severe opposition. You know, they've got the synagogues all up in arms against them. Uh, while this uh, Smyrna is not mentioned in the book of Acts, towns like Thessalonica, there were riots caused by uh, the Jews who wouldn't turn to Jesus Christ and uh, they were putting people to death and it's really severe persecution they've had their properties confiscated right uh, like in the book of hebrews uh you've had your stuff stolen by the authorities you've lost your homes for uh, staying um, for claiming jesus and to be his and, and jesus tells them up straight that things are going to get worse it's this is not the the peak it's just, you're going to suffer more things you're going to be facing imprisonment as many do around the world today, and many did then. Uh, in fact, you're going to have members of your church killed. There are going to be martyrs here in Smyrna for the Lord Jesus Christ. But though the church there might appear to be weak, though they see themselves, they think of themselves as poor, that's how they're self-understanding, the spiritual reality that Jesus sees as he pulls back the curtain is that they are, in fact, because of the gospel and because they stand firm, they are rich. This is a rich church, very rich. And so Jesus' encouragement is to strengthen them for the hard days ahead. Yes, things are hard. Yes, the devil himself is uh, behind all the suffering you are suffering. Yes, things are going to become worse, but do not fear. Do not be afraid. Why not? Well, don't fear because Jesus is in control. Don't fear because he's put a limit on the persecution that's coming. And do not fear, because in the end, Jesus will give those who are faithful the crown of life, even in death. And so do not fear, ultimately, because of who Jesus is, the one who introduced himself to them as the one who was dead, but is alive again. Right? Murdered by men, just like they were being persecuted. Men who hated him, and yet he came back again in glory. It's very hard to use death as a threat against someone who believes wholeheartedly that Jesus has risen from the dead, bodily ascended, and he's conquered death. For death is not the end. So let's ponder again. Are we like them? Are we standing up in the face of opposition? You know, even though we might feel weak, we're proud to be known as Christian and to uh, defend the faith and that it's right and promote Jesus, or, or actually we're too afraid to be faithful. At work, in the family, speaking up for the Lord Jesus. You know, are we the kind of church where we all become chameleons uh, at the first sign of opposition? We just kind of blend into the back. Of, I start to look like a pulpit. <laughs> uh, you know, and just look like the world around us. You know, we're afraid because Jesus' ways are unpopular and we're afraid that people will turn on us and single us out and, you know, make fun of us. Well, if that is us, let's take courage. Take courage because what we face is nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters have faced in Christ in history, in, in Smyrna. Across the world this very day, there are people being arrested, being tortured, being murdered for being Christian. Uh, let's take courage. And, and take courage not just because there are others who are suffering worse than us, but take courage because our Lord has risen again. And so that not even death can hurt us. There's nothing to fear when you have life and glory ahead. Well, what about the third church, Pergamum? They're a bit like Smyrna, but not quite. Thanks, Gordon. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. 
You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Summary. What are they like? Well, I. Hmm? So, worshiping two gods. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're kind of uh, a bit two-faced, aren't they? They're, um, they they stand in persecution, but they fall in seduction. They're persecuted and seduced. On the positive side, like Smyrna, they've stood as Christians. They are happy to be publicly known as Christians, even under terrible persecution. In fact, things are already the worst for them. The things that Smyrna will face, they are already facing. They have had members killed already for being Christian, murdered in the streets. Right? It's bad. But despite that, and Jesus got some very serious things against them, and I think it's worth highlighting that just because they're suffering doesn't mean they've got a license to sin from Jesus. Okay? Just because you're in pain and in difficulty doesn't mean you can do whatever you like to just feel better about yourself. Right? And this is what he's saying to them. They don't get a pass to do whatever they want because they're in this difficulty and opposition. Yet they've let themselves become seduced. How have they been seduced? Well, they've welcomed in false teachers, people reminiscent of Balaam in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, who, who it's kind of a very weird story. It goes on for about five chapters. Um, Balaam was a self-proclaimed spiritual guru, prophet sort of guy who was kind of a mercenary. Uh, and he was hired by King Balak to call down curses on Israel. And so he saw himself as someone who was in touch with the divine, who could call down blessings, who could call down curses. Just depends who's paying what. Um, uh, and in the end, he and Balak, when they're followers, well, they worked out how to ruin Israel. They said, you know what? Women. Uh, and so they got a whole lot of the Moabite women and Midianite women to come in and seduce the men. Uh, and uh, it's an awful story. And thousands of the Israelites died under God's wrath as a result of it. Uh, and, and so the false teaching, their idolatry and their false view of God and the sexual immorality have all come kind of together and they've been seduced. People like the Nicolaitans, who we've already heard, Jesus hates, right? He hates this group, whoever they are. And this seduction is so serious a threat that Jesus says he's going to come and he is going to make war on his church over it, right? He's going to cut them to pieces with the sword that's coming out of his mouth from that image in chapter 1. And yet his promise to those who remain faithful is that they will receive the bread of life, the conqueror's stone, they will receive a new Christian name. And so let's ponder that again for ourselves. You know, are we that kind of church, a kind of church who seem from the outside to be strong and standing firm, staying faithful, but internally we're actually really compromised and corrupted by falsehood and lies uh, or by idolatry of some kind that you know, we're not worshipping the true and living God or, or not worshipping him in the ways that he calls us to? Um, or are we compromised into sexual sin or other sin with which we need to repent? Because it is entirely possible to stand up in society and declare to everyone around that we shall not be moved, you know, on this word I stand, and to be publicly known for being, you know, super Christians and seem strong and yet to be secretly be someone else entirely underneath, isn't it? I mean, we've, we've, you see it occasionally when, you know, church leaders fall deceived 
seduced into things which God hates, which really are in the end a blasphemy against Jesus. Is that us as a church? Is that you? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Thyatira, they're a bit like Pergamum, only worse. (laughs) That's all. Uh, Let's hear. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, (coughs) your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit about adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a church right to be crying about. (laughs) I think they're a lot like Pergamum, um, the one before. Jesus commends them for their works, their love, their faith and service, but, and it's a very big but, this church is seriously compromised. They, they're white-handed. They, they are hollow. Um, they are divided because they tolerate this false prophetess, Jezebel, who's corrupting them, again, by her false teaching and what she's corrupting into, the same two things, idolatry, you know, the false worship of God or the worship of false gods, uh, and she's corrupted them into sexual immorality. And it's actually funny how those three things always seem to go together. False teaching, which leads you to false worship uh, or false gods, and to immorality, to debauchery, right, and doing whatever you want. They always go together. Sometimes it's not immediately obvious, but it always gets exposed as those three things together. What does Jesus say to this church? Well, he says, well, Jezebel herself, she has been warned, but she has not repented, and so she and those with her are going to be destroyed by Jesus. For her, there is no hope. There is no coming back. She is gone. It is such a final, horrible statement from Jesus, isn't it? They are dead. But notice the encouragement that those who are not seduced by her or to those who will repent even now and turn from her that do not hold to a church and have not learned so-called deep secrets. funny how... A lot of false teaching, you know, the, the person in charge, the teacher, says they've got, they've got something better, some other revelation, something extra that normal Christians couldn't know. They've got a secret, right? And they're going to pass it on to you as special word to this group. But it's Satan's secrets in the end, not God's. He says to them, hold on until I come to you who are faithful or you who will repent, hold on. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. You will be rulers. There is victory, but it's not now, right? It's in the future with him in heaven. The same authority that he himself has from his father in heaven, promised in Psalm 2 and quoted there. So let's ponder that one. Are we safe from that danger or are we in fact seduced into immorality in our church? I mean, it's certainly true of Anglicanism in general across the Western world where false teachers have 
won the day, I think, across the Western world uh, in Anglicanism and led the people into blatant idolatry, right, into mystical forms of worship that are just condemned by God, that he is disgusted by, right, um, and into profound sexual immorality, right? And it starts, you know, it, it takes a long time to roll out. The, the liberalism of the 1950s and 60s has slowly eaten away. And so we've ended up that when you have no truth, no scripture and the no miracles and Jesus isn't God and all those kind of things, so what do we do? Well, we do churchy church and we go higher and higher up the candlestick and we start parading and we kiss our Bibles as we come down and we do all these idolatrous things in hopes that... We, of worship of some God who we don't really believe exists, right? Um, uh, I mean, many Anglican ministers are just uh, outright public atheists. I mean, it's just astonishing. Or pantheists. You know, the world is God. There is a Bible college, Anglican Bible college in Australia where uh, the minister trainees are being taught to basically go down to the forest, hug a tree, and you are hugging God. Right? You do nature works to get in touch with the divine revelation. All right? It is idolatry. It is paganism. It is, it, and as a result of sexual immorality, you bet it has with, um, you know, most of the ministers uh, across Australia are divorced, uh, married multiple times, uh, bishops have been caught in adultery, uh, and now not just advocating for homosexuality, coming out publicly. Right, and uh, condoning all the sorts of things that God hates. Right, they go together. It happened in the ancient world in Canaanite religion. It was basically fertility worship with Baals and Asherahs. Uh, it happened in the Roman and Greek world. You would go to temple, right, to sleep with the trine prostitute. That was worship, and it's only Christianity that wiped it out. It exposed the lies and the disgusting things that were there in South America or throughout Europe. And things, and now the other religions have kind of cleaned up their act in response, but they don't worship God. Uh, and now all kinds of false practices are coming back in. It happened in the Anabaptist movement in the 1500s as they wanted to really proclaim their freedom in Christ and ended up creating Christian brothels, right, and having orgies as church. That's how it ended up in the 15, late 1500s and 1600s in the Anabaptist movements in Germany. It was terrible things. Right, all yeah, just we all just strip off and sleep with who we want. Uh, that is worship of God, right? And you know, and I'm saying the Anglican Church will end up like that. <laughs> it may do, but anyway, um, they go together: false teaching uh, and idolatry and profound immorality. And if we've been caught up in any way in and even heading slightly down those kind of things in our personal life, we need to repent. In a way that Jezebel refused to. Have we been compromised? Have you been compromised? If we have, we need to repent and we need to flee to Jesus, the one whose blood was shed for our sins. And we need to beg him for mercy and we need to beg him for help so that we can resist it. And we need to go and get that help. Well, three left. We'll turn to Sardis. They've got an unfounded reputation. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people inside us who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, churches do gain reputations, don't they? You know, you can say, oh, that's that church that, you know, or 
oh, that's the kind of fun shit, or that's the serious shit, whatever it is. Sardis, what's their reputation? They had a reputation as being really alive. This was the happening place. This is the cool church. But the reality was dead. It's awful. They're a church that's got passion, they've got enthusiasm, they've got programs. It's the bee's knees. But they haven't done what they were supposed to do. And, and it's not that there's an obvious evil or a obvious false teaching like in Thyatira where you can name Jezebel or the Nicolaitans or, you know, um, but it's not clear, but they're not pursuing the right thing either. It's, it's the sin of omission rather than the sin of commission. They're, they're on cruise control. They've fallen asleep at the wheel. They're, and Jesus delivers them a big wake-up call in verse 3. He says, wake up! case you'd fall asleep wake up (laughs) remember what you have received in the gospel and keep it and if you won't wake up i am coming like a thief right and it will not go well but again even within this dead church that you know seems so alive and so vibrant but they've fallen asleep at the wheel. There are some faithful souls who will one day, Jesus says, walk with him in glory, who he will never disown, but he will sing their praises before his heavenly Father. And so let's ponder again, are we like them? You know, do we have a, as a church have a reputation for life, but actually we're asleep, switched off, not doing the things that Jesus calls us to do? I mean, no one could point out any obvious sins, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, just mean, mean we're really good at hiding them. But you know, but really we're not walking in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, sacrificially loving, is that us? You know, uh, or are we ungenerous and apathetic? Are we falling asleep at the wheel, no longer being who we should be or doing what we should do in the name of our Lord? That's a challenge, isn't it? Well, what about the sixth church, Philadelphia, the one in Turkey, not America? To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Summary. Well, from the world's perspective... There's nothing impressive about them, are they? You know, this is you know, the small, weak kind of church that's maybe going to shut up shop for lack of finances or something. It's a, um, is that a church, as he's described, that you'd want to join? You'd go, I'm looking for a new church. Beauty. All right, that's mine. Yeah. Um, maybe you think you've already joined that church. I don't know. Uh, it's the opposite of Sardis, the, the last one. They... They had a reputation for being really alive and happening, but they were really dead. This one seems small and pathetic and on its last legs, but from Christ's perspective, this is a great church. Not because they're small, but he looks at them totally differently to the world, the way the world does. He, 
And he says, I really love this church. This is the only one Jesus says, I love this church. (laughs) What is it that makes it so great that Jesus loves it so much? Well, verse 8, the end of the verse, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Oh, they might be small, they might feel weak, but they've got what it takes. Keeping the word of Christ in spite of opposition and people saying that's dumb and why would you do that? In spite of you know public denouncement. They, and so Jesus says to them, the only word to them is not that there's no warning. He just says, hold on, hold on because my promises are true. I am coming soon, so hold on. There is a crown and my name is on you. You are mine. Wonderful encouragement. Well, let's ponder that one. Are we like them? Is that how Jesus would see us? Faithful, hanging on, pushing forward in our faith, dedicated to to serving our master and Lord and saviour in his kingdom. You know, we're just in it for Jesus. Uh, Is that us? Not worried whether we've got an amazing reputation in world terms because of our size or our influence in society, but but holding firm and fast to the word of Christ and joyfully counting the cost as we live for Jesus and his kingdom. Is that us? Of all the churches that he mentions, that's the one to be like, isn't it? So if it's not us, well, what can we do to make it that way? They're totally unlike the last of the churches. You know, you think you'd end on a positive. Well, let's hear about Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's chilly. It's it's the direct opposite of number two, Smyrna. They thought they were poor, right? They were convinced that they were a poor church, but they were, in fact, rich. Laodicea, they think they're rich, but in fact, they are very poor, pitifully poor. Uh, You've got to know what real wealth is, don't you? Real wealth is not counted in money, it is not counted in property, it is not counted in fancy suits or fancy cars, in glitz, it's not in church terms, counted in terms of size of buildings and building programs that you are doing uh, and how many schools that you own and influence, all those kind of things, right? Like most rich people, they, they are independent, right? They're independently wealthy and they think themselves as independent and all good, They think they need nothing and they think in terms of their spiritual life that it's just right. It's perfect. It's not too hot. You know, like those zealots out there. It's not too cold. You know, know, we're there and we're involved. 
It's moderate, it's sensible, it's balanced Christian life sort of stuff. But you hear these awful, awful words from Jesus in verse 16. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You know, when you take a bite of chicken thigh, you know, chicken off the drumstick and get that gristle. You know, spit it on the plate. You've bitten into the fruit and there's this rotten bit in there and it's just disgusting. You can feel the worm wriggling around. In fact, the old translations translated it, I will spew you out of my mouth. That is what Jesus' attitude to this church is. I'm going to vomit you up. Comfortable, balanced, Middle-class Christianity is absolutely repulsive to the Lord Jesus. It sickens him. And the warning is not just dire, it's also urgent. Why is it urgent, verse 20? Because here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Now, there's a lovely old painting of Jesus from the 1800s by uh, William Hunt of Jesus uh, standing beside the door, uh, tapping gently. Here it is. Turns out someone copied it and put it on the window there. Uh, There you go. Um, There you go. Jesus in his dressing gown late at night, you know, coming over. Anyone home? Let's see. And uh, that's not what this is about. I mean, it's supposed to be based on Revelation uh, here, chapter 316, right? Um, But this isn't Jesus in his dressing gown tapping gently, hoping, hoping that someone might be home to let him in and have a, you know, a nice repast. You know, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the ruler of creation. He is the one whose voice is like Niagara Falls. And he is pounding on the door of the comfortable church, right? He's bringing out the, you know, the big battering ram that the police have, right? banging and offering just one last chance of fellowship with him. So let's ponder again for ourselves, is that us? And we've got to admit there's, there's incredible temptation to be like that, isn't there? To be comfortable Christians, to just sit back and relax and enjoy the good things of life, which God's blessed us with, you know, feeling respectable, feeling safe. And finding our purpose and meaning in life in, in our families and in our things or in our adventures or in our toys. The temptation to be Christian when it's convenient. So long as it doesn't interfere too much with our lifestyle or interfere too much with our weekend plans. Is that us? Is that you? Do you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus? Do you hear the thumping on the door? Do you hear the dire warning to repent or be spat out of his mouth, spewed out as a disgusting mouthful of vomit? It is not a pleasant image. And it's certainly not a pleasant image for us to end on, but it's not meant to be. Because this really is a letter bomb, right? It is an explosive letter to the church. This is the state of the church, right? Not just this one, but all these uh, little groups. And as he describes it, this is the state of the church. It was back then, it is now, and it will be until he returns. It is battered by persecution. It is infiltrated by false teachers and false gospels which bring death and not hope. It falls into idolatry. It's seduced into sexual sin and debauchery. It's tempted to be proud or just careless and carefree and do whatever it wants. It it becomes arrogant and egotistical in some places. Uh, It just romps around in others. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He does not muck around. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And as he writes to these churches, he's actually writing to his whole church to read. He is writing to us that all of us might hear what the spirit says to the whole church to remind and to encourage where needed and to rebuke and warn. He is the Lord of the church and this is his church. He is not here to massage our egos He is not here to punce around. He means business. And just as his warnings are dire, if we are those who give in or give up or are seduced away, so his promise is magnificent. Promises to those who 
overcome. Every single one unto him who overcomes. Are you an overcomer? An overcomer is not someone who capitulates. They are not someone who caves in to pressure or temptation, but they are one who stands firm with patient endurance, trusting him who is the king and saviour, reliant on him, looking to him, wanting to serve him. Are you an overcomer? Will you be an overcomer? Because the ch- he's offering the chance for repentance and change, doesn't he? He's not, he's not you know, offering his warnings, not because they're condemned already, although Jezebel, some of them have been, but... You know, so they can come back and be and overcome to him who overcomes and will give these things, these promises. And the rest of the book of Revelation, with all its strange, weird things that we're going to be starting on from next week, is written to this church, this church across the world that is battered and seduced. And it is written to help that church to repent and to overcome and to trust and to follow and to serve the Lord Jesus, the one who has loved them and given his life for them. Do you hear what the Spirit says to the churches? Do you hear what he's saying to you? I don't know if you look through that list and you go, which one of those is Barney's? That's, a, that's worth reflecting on. Through. Which one are we for? I suspect that there's little bits of all of them in us. Right? There are great things things that are praiseworthy, that Jesus loves. And there are people that Jesus knows are faithful and hold on him. But also there's elements of the bad that needs rebuke and warning that we might turn to him in faith, in repentance, uh, and follow him, our King and Saviour, who has loved us and saved us. Father, these are challenging words on a rainy Sunday morning. But we pray that we would be those who have ears to hear and take to heart what you say to your church. If we are those who have fallen in any way, caved in under pressure, seduced away, actually worshipping a false god or worshipping in false ways or seduced in immorality, Father, help us to heed this warning, please work in our lives, bring the fruit of repentance and turn us back to you. Save us from the warnings that you have you've given us here. But Father, for those who are doing well, who are wondering if it's worth it, help us to cling on and to hold on, to know that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You alone are worth saving. You alone rescue us and your kingdom, which you have promised for yours, is so glorious and wonderful that we might be overjoyed to stand firm and to be public about our faith, no matter what may come, that we might honour you and live for you. Amen.